This morning is the rebroadcast of a 1962 conversation with the late Saul Alinsky community organizer. The program in a moment after this message. Lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical. After all, from all of our legends, mythology, and history, and who's to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he, he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. <laughs> That's all Linsky. Uh, reading his own comment there. It's an epigraph to his new book, Rules for Radicals, published by Random House. Uh, Saul Linsky, whom I've known for some 30 years, is probably the, the best organizer around and about these quarters and all quarters, north, east, south, and west. And even th that particular quote that you read, that is true. We're, we're talking basically about people today, aren't we? You're rather important to millions, Saul, because you're letting people know, the anonymous people, that they have a sense of power. And what we hear very often is this, what can I do, the individual, I am helpless. And you're saying, n n this need not be so. Well, as individual studs, as you know, you said we've known each other for 30 years, going all the way back to the days when we were involved in organizing for sharecroppers, for the International Brigade in Spain, for the CIO, and for those real radical communist things like public housing, yeah. remember that? Yeah. Geez, that was going to be socialism if that ever yeah. hit this country. As a matter of fact, there's someone you mentioned in the book, Elizabeth Wood, a remarkable woman who was a Chicago. Oh, yeah. Some of those names going back there. You were saying? Well, the one thing we certainly knew all the time was, what can, what can I do? You can do nothing by yourself as an individual. From the time of the first urban relocation project out of the Garden of Eden or the salamanders crawling out of the water, whichever way anybody wants to buy it, uh, man is always organized in order to be able to do anything. In order to do anything, you've got to have power. In order to have power, you've got to organize. And from the beginning of time when there were three people on this earth and two of them got together and organized and turned to the third one and said, this is the way it's going to be, baby. We're two against one. That's the way it's always been. If you wanted to do something in a labor field, like the days of the CIO, you had to organize. And then take General Motors, Chrysler, and all the rest of those tycoons, you know. I know one of your teachers, of course, was perhaps the greatest of all labor organizers and most eloquent, John L. Lewis. You wrote his, his biography, the very excellent one. He, that was his theory. He was a genius of an organizer. My teachers were very funny studs. There was John L., uh, these guys sort of, I don't know why, they, they took a, a liking to me. And John L. used to take the position with me that I would be a great organizer someday. This is just when I was a kid, and so he sort of politically adopted me. And we ran into some funny scenes. I can remember once when my saying to him just sort of getting off the ball. But I, I asked him one day, uh, his personal life was all screwed up, you know, and I said, uh, how does a great organizer like you wind up with your personal life so screwed up. And he said, well, you'll learn when, one of these days when you get to be up there. And boy, was he right. At any rate, there was Lewis, and then there was uh, Clarence Darrow. I was lucky enough to be included in a small group of kids at college. He had an apartment close by. And on Sunday afternoons when he was in town, we'd walk, we'd 
be invited over for tea, and we'd sit there at the feet of our idol, you know, just looking up to him. And then I can't uh, discount Ed Kelly. I disagreed with a lot of, you know, you remember the days of the Kelly machine? Jesus made Daly's operation look like a junior league. Let's not forget those days. They didn't even bother to count Palestine. You can remember they used to weigh him. Uh, and when Election Day came around, it was the greatest day of resurrection that had ever been seen. It made the Christ resurrection story look like a two-bit operation. Everybody who was dead around Chicago was voted that day, you remember? <laughs> the days of Bathhouse John and uh, his beautiful rationalizations. On so in the sense, these were all teachers one way or another of you. I didn't so have to agree with what yeah. they were going for, but I knew that they knew how to organize. That's what, That's what I was interested in finding out. Pendergast down in Kansas City was another guy, you know. These were great organizers. So basically, if even taking a contemporary case, a man <coughs> neither of us admires, uh, so the mayor of the city, organization. There was an organization that resulted in a victory by more than 400,000, and it's organization, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Uh, I think the one big difference, on, uh, and I watched Daly organize from the time when he was a state representative out of Bridgeport. Uh, those were the days when uh, we pulled one thing which Daly's never forgiven me for. Uh, we got into a battle at Back of the Arts Council. Those were the days when it was a militant, tough. It, 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 was, it was the ideal uh, people's organization through the country. Everybody said so. John L. Lewis uh, said it was the greatest people's organization. Ed Murrow, who used to be, remember, with CBS, did a one-hour documentary on it as the ideal one against prejudice. Communist Party of America pronounced it the greatest united front. Those were the days when its program was along that line. But uh, so we took on the, uh, the Park District, Chicago Tribune, and, uh, and the Democratic Party. And remember, we were we represented five of the submachine wards, and we just beat the hell out of them. And Daly, at that time, we compelled him to uh, publicly break with the Democratic Party. You know he, how he prizes party loyalty, organization loyalty, and come out on the side of back of the yards against Kelly. It's one thing he's never forgiven me for. Can we? Uh, so, because uh, this will come up often, and I know you have a reply to it. And I'll say, the back of the yards, but that thrilling the accelerating moment that it had, uh, what happened to it, you know, and how come you didn't go further so it would not be able to fulfill its dream? I know you have a reply to that. No, you can't. It's, uh, it's the one, it's the one uh, problem, Studs, the one question that, uh, that uh, we don't have any answers for, and that is what happens when the have-nots get together and then they, they make it through power. They're successfully organized, they, they win their battles, and they get to be uh, they get to be the haves. Well, uh, they change. Uh, morality, to a large extent, is nothing more than a rationalization of the particular time and place that you're occupying on a power pattern. If you're a have-not, you're out to get. If you're a have, you're out to keep. Now, the what I call the nightfall of success. Once you en enter that, uh, there's. Uh, that's the way it goes. You you shift over. We've seen it with the CIO. You remember what a militant organization that used to be? We've seen it in the last 25 years. Unless there years. is that one ingredient not yet found. You know, that's the aspect of uh, what? The, the nature of man himself possibly altering some values. This is the thing we talk about a lot. Well, it's always getting a little bit better. 
anybody who thinks it isn't, all they've got to do is look back through time and what things were, well, for example, uh, during feudalism, when you were born in a certain class, you stayed there no matter what you you could do. You, you were going to be a, a craftsman, and that's where you stayed. Uh, even, uh, even on the war scene, as much as both of us are always battled against Vietnam and our goofed-up foreign policy and supporting all these reactionary fascistic governments around, but yet it's, it's, it has been getting better around it. It has to. Uh, the uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you you do you do get you may get certain qualitative changes. Well, they look at Christ. Uh, Christ was only thirty three when he got knocked off. I don't know what would have happened to him if he'd scored. He didn't score, you know. If Paul hadn't come around. I mean, what the hell kind of an organizer was Jesus? He had twelve guys. One faked out on him. The other eleven ran for the woodwork the minute the heat got turned on. I think this is a lot of crap about that they uh, denounced him before the cock crowed thrice. I think the minute the cock opened its mouth, they were gone, you know. So uh, I'm sorry. And there wasn't any Ford Foundation around to give him a grant or anything else like that, you know. Uh, all through history, that has yeah. been the pattern that has also, followed. Also, I know that you, you evoke and call upon lessons through history, but throughout, in your book, in this new book of yours, Rules for Radicals, you're showing how the anonymous people can find a sense of power through organization, and the no. you. But you're always talking about specifics, aren't you? Not abstract. Something very that's specific. That's right. That's right. I'd like to see, in the first place, I, uh, although my whole life has been given over to the organization for power, I have a serious distrust of power, and. Uh, uh, what I'd like to see is power, all kinds of groups having power, and in the constant scrapping between all of them, this is where you get the good life. This is where you keep getting all the compromises and the give and takes and so on. It's when the power starts really getting in just a few, and then fewer and fewer and fewer, and then a Heil Hitler, you know, that kind of business. Then, then you're in trouble. Well, of course, I think you're talking about power within persons, a power within groups and contrast. You know, there's the usual cliche, and you blast that. You know, the Lord Acton phrase is called upon power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You're saying that powerlessness, powerlessness really in individuals corrupts. Powerlessness really corrupts. Yeah. Also, uh, I don't know what everybody's so upset about on this business of corruption. Uh, it's sort of like uh, if you don't want to die, you got no business getting born. If you don't want to be somewhat corrupted that way, you got no business living. We all get life itself is a corrupting process. It depends upon who's calling the shots on it. You know, from the time you start playing your father off against your mother when you're five years old, you're already making deals. You're already getting corrupted. But there's right? another way you put it in the book, and that is conflict. Somewhere along here, the very the, uh, the essential aspect of conflict in life. You know, and you blast the whole idea of a person being controversial. We're all controversial, but we're born. And you speak of conflict as one of the essences of progress, you know, the battling continuously. Well, conflict and battle is the, is the, uh, is the very matrix out of which every creative idea, every, pro every form of progress comes out, and out of which life is. Uh, other, did you ever hear of any society uh, uh, that believed in consensus and conformity uh, really doing anything? 
Can you think of a more conformity society with more consensus than, uh, say, the Third Reich, where you, if you disagreed on anything, yeah. you were a handful of ashes yeah. the next morning? So I'm thinking of the uh, people asking of the very ways to do it, and there's so many techniques. Right now you're working with middle-class groups, uh, aside from the, your work with the have-not groups. There's a perfect case in point. Suppose you act yourself and I'll be this guy on the street. You know, when, when these are tenants, you know, the guy lives in a slum house. Yeah. And you've got it here. Perhaps we can even read it, you know. The idea. Oh, I know that. I've done it so many times. Oh, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll read the guy. Okay. And this is a... Here, the, quoting from Solinsky's book, book, the organizer's job is to inseminate an invitation for himself to agitate. By the way, you are an agitator. Sure. Hmm. And an outside an agitator. An outside agitator. There, there is no such thing as an inside agitator, Stubbs. You know that. If you come up from the inside, one or two things happen. See, they either knock you off or you get co-opted or uh, uh, you, uh, you have to take off and go someplace else. There's another important thing there, too, because when an agitator comes in, he's an organizer, he's got to have something to really contribute in that scene. Otherwise, what does he do? He just adds another digit to the population figure there. Now... You know the old cliche of prophet is without honor in his own hometown? So suppose I walk into a community. He's also without profit, too. He's also without yeah, profit, yeah. yeah. You walk into a community and you, and you say you've got answers here on things that can be done and so on. If, you, if you're in your own community, hell, they've known you from the time you've been a little kid and so forth. They can't look upon you as an organizer. They say, well, well, geez, that's the Olenski kid. You know, we grew up with him. We played ball with him. What the hell's he know? We don't know. Other, also, they also have the reaction. This goes for any organizer. Uh, God, why, why should this guy for, uh, right in our own neighborhood have answers that I don't know? It becomes an ego blow to them. But if it's somebody from the outside, all of a sudden there's a uh, Yet, but so isn't there a case someone who's studied with you, one of your disciples in a sense, Cesar Chavez, is successfully it would seem organizing his own people. You know, he, it's true that he... Yeah, he but he's an outside he organizer to them. Yeah. Well, it, uh, it, no, he's, uh, to a lot of those people, he's an outside organizer. He didn't come from those farm fields right outside of Delano, you know. Here's a case. Okay, so here's a guy. He lives in a rat hole. It's infested. doesn't know what to do. He's paying all sorts of rent to some absentee slumlord, no doubt. And... Uh, you're coming along. You, 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 you use what you call the Socratic method. Yeah, and you're always questioning. So I'm, walking along, I'm walking along the street, and I'm just disgusted with my life. Okay. And yes, about that building I live in. And I, but he has it's his own book, so I've got the book in my hands. So you ask me. Oh, well, uh, first of all, I hand you a cigarette. I, I ask you for a light or something. You know, i got to start. You don't know me. Something. I don't know you. I don't know you, no. Right. But I know this. I know that I can't come in and start telling you what to do without my looking like, uh, you know, who the hell am I, Jesus, you know. Uh, I, I respect your dignity. I respect you as a person. In order, and therefore, in order for me to, to work with you, you've got to ask me to work along with you, see? So this is what we're setting up now. So I come along and I ask you for a light, and you, if you, and then you give me a... Room, at, the, at this very as moment. At this moment. So I'm letting you shake it. So then I offer you a cigarette, and I'm seemingly waiting for a bus, and yeah. I say, uh, you from around here? Yeah. You live around here? 
Yeah, what about Where? it? Mm-hmm. Where do you live? That building over there. No kidding. You live in that shit house over there? Yeah, what about it? Jesus, uh, uh, you pay rent? And how? You pay rent to live there? <laughs> no. Oh, well, uh, look, don't uh, don't start getting all uh, you know burned up on me. I, I just uh, I'm just asking some questions. I, I, I just well, don't you see, what do you mean? What, what do I live here? Of course I. Where else am I going to live? I'm 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 on welfare, and of course I pay rent. What would happen if you didn't pay your rent? Well, wait a minute. Wait yeah. a minute. Wait a minute. Before, uh, when uh, that, that building looks like it's full of cockroaches, rats, and well, <laughs> you t- not only that, it's got everything. Got lead poisoning too for the kids. And you pay rent? Oh, come on. Of course you won't. What do you think would happen if I didn't pay rent? Of course. Well, what would happen if you didn't pay rent? Why, they'd throw me out in five minutes, are you kidding? Hmm. What would, uh, what would happen if uh, nobody in that building paid rent? Well, they'd start... What? It... I'm, uh, nobody paid any rent. Now, wait a minute. They'd st- I was going to say that... Well, you know, they'd have trouble throwing everybody out, wouldn't they? Well, what do you think? Hey, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe you got something. Hey, uh, um, you, I got some friends. You want to meet some of my friends? Uh, come on, you, you want to go for a drink? Sure. <laughs> and so uh, it's true. This is done in a very simplistic way. This okay, conversation. now we're off and running. But this is basically. Yes, this is basically the, the way. That's it is. right. And you notice, studs. I never t- say what to do or say anything mm. or venture an opinion. All I'm doing are ask. I'm asking questions, and all the way through, all the way through an organization, it's straight questions. You're never told what to do. If if you come up even with a tactic, and I think the tactic is a lot of crap, I may. I'll say to you, well, now what's going to happen with so and so if uh, if uh, you pull this. Hey, uh, just the way we talk. Hey, maybe that won't be so good. And so we keep going until finally the tactics come out of you and everything else comes out. So then something happens here. You're not telling someone what to do, merely peeking, uh, hitting what might, well, You're I, I know you, 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 you quote Niels Bohr and uh, the impertinent question, the question that never was asked is asked in a sense. The question is, when you t- say sub- subversive, which I am to a lot of these things, agitator, which I am, uh, what it cuts down to is asking questions. If you, if you put the mark of the agitator, if you had to depict it, it would be the question mark. Look, that's why they knocked off Socrates. The minute you start asking a question or getting people to ask any questions about any sacred cow, it can't be stopped. They question that and say, hey, why should I believe that one? Why should I buy this thing? Why should I go along living in this crap over here? Why, why, why? And a revolution's on. But it's also the question that hitherto had not been asked. Suppose it is not just me alone, but suppose all of us did it. That's the thing. The guy doesn't think that maybe someone else thinks as he does in the same predicament. He does. But we did it together. That's what you're talking about. That's right. You see, the why's come along. The why keeps going on. Why can't I do anything about it? Well, because I'm alone. Because, well, wh- why? Wh- wh- what do I need? I need power. Well, how do I get power? Everything's a question. Yeah. Get together with others. And as a result of this, there is someone in the community always who comes along. That is, as a result of this, there, as right at this moment, the Committee Against Pollution, 
which is also that's right. One of the there's a of, has has appeared a figure, Father Leonard Doobie, who's quite remarkable. That's right. There are always those. That's the beautiful thing about uh, people on it. That's, so that's this is what's happened. This is what happened when you were in uh, Rochester, say. And the Rochester involved something in, involving the Kodak Company. In fact, we can talk about that. We're, we're skipping, really. All we're doing is touching very lightly on Saul Linsky's newest book, his other one, of course, the classic Reveille for Radicals, but from our Rules for Radicals that Random House has put out. And where do we go? It's, it's almost any place you find the sources of power, and the sources of power are the people who live there, obviously. That's right. Yeah. Now, basically, when we're talking about a free and open society, when we're talking about a future of, of, of people, the best kind of society, we're talking about the best kind of society for people. Not a few people, but for all of the people. This means that what we have to do is to try to get power to the people, which has become a cliche today, but realistically here. And in order for people to have the power, they've got to organize. And then we've got to have one article of faith, just one. And that is that if people have the power, they will do the best thing for themselves in the future. Who the hell are we to sit up there like some gods and say, this is the yeah. thing that will bring you happiness? You know, Not only that, but the world keeps shifting all the time on us. How do we know what the problems are going to be 20 years from now? In terms of imagination, uh, look at the dream studs that both of us have had, the days when uh, you could have gone back into the 30s, hard, your hard times, the dreams we had if the CIO really got successful, if we got the whole WPA into CIO, we got a third party or we took over the Democratic Party, or the days once Hitler was defeated and in a whole new world, the great United Nations that would be set up, a world of peace and everything else. And you know, and we've talked about this before, if, if anybody would have come to us in 1947, right after the war was over, and said to us that our great gallant allies, uh, the Soviets and, uh, the, and uh, the Chinese, the mainland Chinese, our great allies that we love so much, we died together, fought together, as over against those sadistic, butchering, uh, Germans and uh, every profane term we had for the Pearl Harboring Japanese and so on, that within two years that whole power alignment okay. would be reversed. You know, you'd have thought, geez, we were off on a trip that made LSD look like a, a two-bit going around the corner. Because this is what Pentagon Papers is all about. Yeah, no, this is what happens. Yeah. And it's, it's happened yeah. repeatedly, you know. The fact is that we've got to make the choice as we do on power to the people on the same basis, we make all choices. This is a big problem I have with a lot of my younger radical colleagues, that all value judgments and all tactic decisions, all policy decisions, all everything, are never made on the basis of what's best because life never affords us that opportunity, but always on a basis of alternatives. If we get away from a policy of power to the people, what are we left with? Power to the elite? Dictatorships? What, what have we got? What, what's the other side of the coin? You know? So we take it in terms of the alternatives. And uh, the old Lincoln business, you know, though, though, people make mistakes a lot of the time, but in the long run. Uh, but the appeal also is to self interest people, to self interest. Yeah. Do you know of any other interests? Mm. 
people have. <laughs> you have in your chapter. Except uh, when they're stoned. In your book, Rules for Radicals, your chapter of means and ends, and this always comes up. So Alinsky believes too much in pragmatism is the accusation, the charge, you know. And you explain, what do you mean by means? What do you mean by I don't by believe ends? too much in pragmatism. I believe totally in pragmatism. Yeah. What do I mean by means? A means is something that works. It doesn't work, it isn't a means. Uh, if I only got one means ahead of me, uh, uh, I'll, uh, I'll use it. And, uh, and then say, like everybody else in the world has always said, what else could I do? What do you want me to do? You know, it's so easy to, to luxuriate on all this yeah. uh, morality stuff when you got it, and I haven't got it. I had somebody, where the hell was it? It was just, uh, oh, it was on a TV show in, in uh, Dayton. This guy says to me, uh, this is one of those mm. talk shows and all that stuff, and he says, uh, and this is sort of a purist guy, and he says, uh, uh, what are you taking the people from uh, your uh, that you're you're uh, telling them that uh, to get a bigger piece of this pie of corruption, of bourgeois, decadent, imperialistic, warmongering, uh, degenerate uh, values, that's what you're fighting for. Well, Jesus, you know what the guy doesn't understand? If I only got a crumb of bread, I haven't got anything, and there's a guy up there with a big piece of pie, I should start worrying whether that's a corrupt pie at this point. It's sort of like the business also when you start talking about values, uh, which we've talked about before, when there's somebody over here saying to me, look, we're being discriminated against, we're being shafted, we're being exploited, uh, my children have no future ahead of them, help us organize, work with us. So what should I do? Say, to, and we need bread, we're starving, you know? And I say, now look, first of all, cool it, man. Uh, you should learn the first lesson that man does not live by bread alone. <laughs> At this point, he's ready to, to yeah, take well, my head off, you know. But let me go further. Now, uh, you know what will happen if we all get organized and we get power on it? You know what happened back of the yards and what will happen elsewhere? You're going to win because we know how to organize and we know how to win, and then you're going to become part of this decadent, materialistic, bourgeois culture. You're so why don't you sit there on your crap and stay there, you know? What the hell? You can't do so that, stuff. No, so your point is, let what happen happen later on, assuming that people will develop, people will grow. There's, there's so much you do at a certain moment. From then on in, you assume, or you hope there will be a certain development that well, occurs. What, what else First can you of all, do? the stomach has to be fed. You know, your second rule of Solinsky and of ways and of means and ends in the, chap in the chapter in the Rules for Radicals, the second rule of the ethics of means and ends is the judgment of the ethics of means is dependent upon the political position of those sitting in judgment. Who defines it? You quote Shaw's Man and Superman, the little marvelous dialogue between oh. Tanner and Mendoza. What, what did Mendoza say? I'm, I'm a brigand. Uh, you quote him, I live by robbing the rich. And Tanner replies, I'm a gentleman. I live by robbing the poor. Shake hands. Sure. So who defines? <coughs> now we come to the question, who defines what is ethical? Isn't that the point? It's, it's always the other side that defines it. I, I, I don't think I have it in there, but I can remember the first time it hit me right between the eyes. I was in Westminster Abbey, you know, that big forest lawn that the British have over there. And I'm looking up at one of the plaques on a wall, and it's to His, his Majesty's Great Patriot, uh, Major John Andre. And I look at it, and before I could stop myself, I say out aloud, you know, why, that traitorous son of a bitch. And I suddenly realize I'm an American. Yeah. This guy was... Uh, John Andre was the British uh, spy. That's right. 
but to a uh, but here I'm now in Britain. Look, if we had lost the revolution, there's one line in there that's very important in mm -hmm. that book, and that on definitions of ethics here. There can be no such thing as a successful trader because if you succeed, you become a founding father. Now, if we had lost the American Revolution, names like Jefferson, Madison, Jay, Hamilton, Adams, all those names would be names of traders. And you know who would be the name of the great heroes? Benedict, Benedict Arnold, Arnold yeah. sure. Yeah. So, that's, that's the way this is. So this it a question of how does one succeed, and this is the thing. And you again <coughs> point to certain tactics. This is terrible. And we'll come to specifics in a moment, too. We'll take a slight pause for a moment with Saul Alinsky as my guest. And uh, he is the organizer's organizer. Rules for Radicals is the book. And a pragmatic primer for realistic radicals. We'll come to that adjective in a moment. Random House, the publishers. pick up the conversation with, with Saul Alinsky and Rules for Radicals. And now the, the question of tactics and techniques. You were telling me a story, it's in your book too, that the power boys, those who run things most, the big shots, you, you, if they don't know where your source is, you have to surprise them all the time. What they no. think you have, and you were mentioning to me your father years ago, a certain incident that was revelatory to you, and you use that as a metaphor take on there. Oh, you want, you want me to tell what you What do you that? think? In a way, that kind of... That kind yeah, of well, uh, well, you see, power, to begin with, the, these, a lot of these characters that we call the establishment or we call the, the, the power elite or there are all kinds of names. We're so damn busy in our organization, we just call them the lousy bastards. Uh, power, uh, a lot of their power is not what they really got, but what we think they have. And as a consequence, we go along always, uh, uh, always being afraid of what they might do. It sort of reminds me, in a way, uh, of an old story. Maybe you can remember the studs. So the guy who had this red dragon, he kept it out in his backyard. He used to be a nice dragon until one day it went berserk and started knocking over the garbage can and everything else and raising all kinds of hell. So the guy goes out there and he looks at the dra his dragon and he says, now look. You either behave yourself or I'll take two aspirins and get rid of you, you know? And this is a problem with a lot of the illusions that we have about power. It's the kind of thing I had with my father on that episode you mentioned. When one day he just beat the hell out of me and then leaned over me and said, now if you ever do that again, you know what'll happen to you. And why, I don't know, but through my tears, I must have been about seven years old, six years old, I looked up and said, what? And I never saw my old man go so completely disorganized in my life. And I suddenly realized he didn't know what the hell was going to happen. It was just a threat. And then I realized that he didn't know. And he was the establishment to me then. And over and over again, I've looked at the establishment and said, you know, screw you. This is what I'm going to do. What are you going to do about it? And geez, they run for the woodworks. They start climbing walls. Over and over again, this has happened. And there's something else that's interesting. Again, uh, the book, I'm just, I'm just picking out various parts at random here. That's something that John L. had taught you, too, John L. Lewis. Uh, you know, uh, old Marshall Field III, in his biogra uh, the biography written on me, uh, on him, rather, in which uh, they had a lot of notes on his relationship with me, he quotes me correctly as having said one day uh, that uh, I could go ahead and uh, persuade any millionaire on a Friday to subsidize a revolution on Saturday from which he'd make a big profit on Sunday, although he most certainly would be executed on Monday, but he couldn't resist that Sunday yeah. profit, you know. 
I'll give you an example of what happened on him. Maybe I'm talking out of turn here. But when Reveille for Radicals came out, I knew it was going to be a number one bestseller, as it turned out to be, from the minute before, uh, a week before it hit, because we knew it was going to be lead reviews all over the places, editorials, and the University of Chicago Press, which was publishing it at the time, uh, realized it. So uh, Marshall Field and Company cancels out a cocktail party, uh, one of these autographing parties over there. I don't know. I think I told you the story. And... Uh, on a basis, this book was so highly controversial and so inflammatory, it would create disorder and unrest and stuff like that. So Field came over to see me, and he was really upset. And he was going over to Fields to the department store, but he was a minority stockholder at that time. I said, well, cool it, you know. And then I repeated the story about this millionaire thing that I just told you. I said, look, this book's going to be a number one bestseller. It's coming out on Monday. By Wednesday, they'll be handling it. They'd also refused to sell any of the books in their big third floor uh, book section, you know. But they did it in writing, too, over to Joe Brandt, who then was head of the University of Chicago Press, and Joe was really upset. Well, what happened? It hit the first day, and Jesus, it just rolled, you know. And by Wednesday, Chicago Tribune, page three, quarter page ad, Marsh, you know, Marshfield Company script writing, Proudly presents the nation's most controversial book. Order it, <laughs> it's a, charge it, you know, all that stuff. When our profit was too hard to resist. <laughs> we were talking to. By the way, we're talking about techniques. We have to come to those tactics. Uh, you show that there are certain boycotts that don't succeed. Like that goes a boycott says, don't buy things during the Christmas weekend, and you know it's not going to work out. That's right. You know? Or don't take photographs uh, in, in your Kodak. You show what can succeed. And you say, How a department store, you point this out on page 146 somewhere. A department store that does not hire black discrimination, a way in which, do you mind describing it, how the customers come in, you know? I mean, the tactic we used on? Yeah, I think this is terribly important. Oh, that was, that was right here in Chicago, actually, without naming the store because yeah. it's now cooperating okay. with this one of the biggest department stores. Well, you see, w uh, one tactic, uh, one, uh, one thing I constantly keep trying to get across to all of my kids is luck. Play it inside the law. You can just, if you, you can kill them by making them live up to their own regulations. You don't have to go outside of them. They can't live up to their own code of, of, of operations, law or ethics or anything else. It's like trying to make the Christian church be Christian. They can't be Christian, you know. So instead of having a big sit-in or something like that being militant, what we were going to do was... Uh, uh, we were going to send down about 4,000. Of course, you've got to be organized to be able to pull these tactics. 4,000 blacks, and there were one decent suit, one decent dress. And they were coming down on a key shopping day, which in this case was going to be, I think, on a Friday or Saturday. And uh, we are going to bust them all down. Then they were going to go into the store shopping. Well, you stick 3,000 blacks on the main floor even though this department store covers a square block. And, you know, from that point on, and they're shopping, and they're legitimately. And since they're poor, it takes some time to shop. You know, you look at a shirt, you want to see what kind of material it has, the design of the collar, the cuffs, the this, the that. And then you can keep moving over from counter to counter. Well, what, what happened? Any white guy walking through those revolving doors would take one look and figure he stepped through a time barrier and he's in Africa or someplace and he'd keep rolling out and go out. That'd be the end of the white train. All day long it'd be tied up that way. Then, just about an hour before the closing time, 
We'd order every damn thing in the store. Buy out the whole place. COD. Okay. That would tie up all their trucking for the next two or three days. And of course, we'd turn it down when it was delivered there. Now, one of the important things also in terms of tactics is understanding that the threat is often infinitely more terrifying than the tactic itself. It's just like going to the hospital for an operation. You worry about it a hell of a lot more than what's going to happen once you hit the hospital. They put you under sedation. Most of the time, you you don't even know what the hell happened until you get out of it. So we had a couple of stool pigeons who were Uncle Tom's who were uh, highly treasured by us because you got to have a means of communication over to the other side. So we put them on strategy committees, and then, of course, immediately, they, the, once the meeting was over and everything lined up on just what we were going to do, they got on a phone with this department store. The very next day, we got a telephone call from the head of personnel over there. Uh, we'd like you to know that uh, we just had an emergency meeting and our We've changed over our whole personnel policy, and we want to hire uh, blacks to work as, uh, as uh, right on the counters, also in our executive departments, and so on and so on, and we'd like to have a meeting with you. So then to really sink the hook, we said, okay, we'll have the meeting next week. Remember, we're scheduled to pull this in three days. Oh, no, 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 let's have a meeting tomorrow, you know? Right away. Well, then we knew yeah. the bait had been taken. Right, right. And that's the way it so was that's shifted. The way it, and now that same technique you've suggested recently at the Unitarian Church on the South Side in connection with middle-class people, black and white, and in the matter of automobiles. You know, we hear so much from Detroit that one day there will be a pollutionless car. We know damn well it could be now if they wanted to. Sure. Now how... Could have been five now, years ago. There's a technique, similar to the one you just described, because this also involves joy. We'll come to that minute. The matter of getting a kick out of life itself, too, as well as sense That's of That's very important. Yeah. The tactics that people involve, the tactics should be such that people are having a good time doing it. Not only having a good time, they're having a sense of adventure on it. It's exciting. It's dramatic. It's a little bit of living, which the middle classes are starved for. The middle class monotony is almost as bad as ghetto monotony is, you know, and tedium. Uh, well, they start going, uh, let's take a look at it. We've got General Motors here. How the hell are we going to get General Motors to really move? Uh, they're in Detroit. They've got all their big stock operations and everything else. Here we are in Chicago. Here we are in Buffalo, New York or someplace. How do we get at this huge dinosaur? Well, there are a couple of clues you have. You have the clue, you know, of the mosquito that gets up the elephant's rear end, and that's the end of the elephant. He goes nuts on it. We gotta find a, a vulnerable spot. Get them right under their fingernails or up around other sensitive areas. Uh, well, where, where, where can we get them? They're dealers. They make the automobiles in Detroit. We buy them in Chicago. We buy them in Buffalo, New York. Okay, now, as far as middle class people, and you gotta remember th- that their tactics have to be inside their experience, you know, nothing too rough or too crude until the other side will will radicalize them. Well, that's terribly important, too. It has to be within the life experience of of those people. No, you can't be crude. You can't be profane. You can't be this or that. They're with this middle-class background they have. So they they get organized to start coming in on GM dealers and uh, looking over a car. They want a demonstration ride in it. 
They take up a salesman for an hour, an hour and a half, going around, asking all kinds of questions, getting all the way into the finances, getting all set to buy the thing, uh, dickering on the trade-in, all the things that are going on in the car. And then suddenly they say, hey, uh, uh, I understand that the pollution-making uh, engines are going to be out in about five years. And I don't know what the government's going to do as far as all the cars are still on the road. And besides that, this pollution's a pretty bad thing. I, I think I'll wait until 1975. Thanks very much. Now, as they keep coming <laughs> in on all these dealers, you know, one, they take all the salesmen out of circulation. And what the hell's the dealer going to do? How does he know that that nice family group coming in or those women coming in are really agitators, radicals out against, against pollution, you know? He can't take a chance on it. What's he going to say? Look, are you one of those troublemakers? That's the end of a possible sale. So that means all the salesmen are tied up. All the salesmen are tied up? Definitely. Sure, and so are the uh, so are the agencies. And you don't think they're going to start screaming to Detroit? What the hell's happening to us? Look at all the dough. How can we take delivery on all these cars? We're not selling them. Why aren't you selling them? Because our salesmen are tied up with all these troublemakers. And so then you're saying, similar to the department store thing, then and very soon then the pollutionless car would be available on the market. Very, uh, very soon. So if, uh, in, envision the scene then, as the one that you envision is if we're organized in these communities and there were 10,000 people in each city that day going to all the car dealers and asking for the test ride, then coming back, I'll wait till 1975. They could. This is the technique you're talking about. That's right. It isn't just picketing. It isn't just giving out press releases. Yeah. These things are important with reference to the media, getting the people more and more aware. But basically, you know, the old business is nothing as dead as yesterday's news yeah. still applies. Basically, you've got to keep the pressure on and on where it hurts, and this means organization. Do you yeah. have all these old and new tactics, and you're always talking about this, and the, the tactics must always be outside the experience of uh, experience of the establishment. Yeah, well, I point, I point out in there, for example, I knew that sit-downs or sit-ins were dead when the vice president of one of the biggest drug corporations in America rolls out a blueprint in front of me and shows me a, a blueprint of his new factory in which he's got a big room, which is going to be called a sit-in room. So when guys come in to sit in, they're going to be let into this huge sit-in room with color TV and coffee and magazines and everything else. They can sit there for 20 years. So he's co-opted it then. He's sure. co-opted. So the, now the, the key then is to have a technique, a way, that is immune from being co-opted by the very one from whom you seek certain rights. This is very funny. You quote Finley Peter Dunn. Uh, I oh, guess un until Mike Royko came along, you might say perhaps the greatest columnist in, in the Midwest. And uh, this is Mr. Dooley, turn of the century. Don't ask for rights, take them. And don't let anyone give them to you. A right that is handed to you for nothing has something the matter with it. It's more likely that it's only a wrong turned inside out. So it has to be sure. one. It has take to it, be. Doesn't it? Perhaps you could describe... Uh, we merely touch very briefly on this book. We've gone almost an hour. I know you have other engagements, so Alinsky, but perhaps touch on the technique. Oh, by the way, people say, Alinsky has all this planned. It's all worked out. Of course, and you indicate in the book and to me that often it's improvisation. Something unexpected comes to you that you hadn't planned, such as the proxy matter. Would you mind describing the Rochester and why you were there with the song and the proxy matter? 
Well, this is something I'm practically doing a whole new book on, just on uh, the part that accident and chance plays in the in one's life, on tactics or anything else. Uh, uh, let me give you an example, Stas. This is the first time it's come out publicly. I'm, I'm, I just finished writing it. I've always had sort of a feeling about not talking that openly about it. But what the hell, you know, you only live once. Huh? Right. And uh, it's, uh, this is the way so many things happen, but other people will not accept it that way. They believe. They have to believe that life is rational, it's logical, and everything goes according to plan, calculation, everything we learn in our colleges is reason, logic, mental discipline, being systematic, Roman numeral one, small a, small b, Roman numeral two, and so on. So as a consequence, a whole mythology develops around you. And since so many guys like to believe the mythology, like a story I tell in there that I selected uh, July 14th, as the first uh, date for the, uh, the first community congress of the back of the yards, purely on a basis that it was, uh, it was uh, the one date that the CIO had opened, the one date that was best for the church, the one date that was best all around, and the park auditorium was open that one day. So an hour before the uh, convention starts, I'm sitting in a press conference, and Ed Leahy, formerly Chicago Daily News, and a top labor reporter then says to me, uh, well, now, Alinsky, uh, uh, people know about you and the way you think and so on. Now, obviously, there isn't any question you deliberately picked today because it's Bastille Day. Now, do you have any further comment on it? I said, uh, I don't look at it. It's the first time it crossed my <laughs> mind. I said, uh, well, no, I have nothing further to add to it. Then I go around and I tell all the speakers, remember, today's Bastille Day, to the barricades in every speech, you know. But every damn account that's been written about me always points out my Machiavellian genius on it, you know, and stuff like that. It's, uh, let me give you an example on how some of these things happen. This is the first time anything like this ever come out. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm sitting in my office. This is around 19, uh, oh, I don't know, but let's see, this is 71... It's about 20, 21 years ago. And a guy from uh, Montana calls me, and he's the editor of a newspaper, a, l- a small paper, and he's one of the few guys fighting Anaconda Cop. And he's, uh, he's saying to me, uh, i got to have an organizer. Will you send somebody out here to help me organize? I said, I haven't got one. I wish the hell I, I did have one. So I'm still bothered over it because it's a beautiful guy, and uh, Joe Kenzie Howard, I don't know whether you remember that name. He wrote a book called Montana High, White, and Handsome Lay. A beautiful book on it. Anaconda Copper hated him, him as much as Eastman Kodak hates me, you know. So uh, that night, I'm still living in Hyde Park then, and it was sort of a weekly uh, social thing of a poker party. A couple of University of Chicago professors, a couple of, uh, a couple of psychiatrists, a couple of uh, left-wing uh, agitators, and and myself, I suppose I put myself in with the latter. And we always used to meet and play poker. So one of the University of Chicago professors, very well known, top, top sociologist, died, been dead for some time now. While we're playing poker, he starts griping about uh, the fact that he's had to take over an organization called the American Council on Race Relations, which was set up between Marshall Field and the old Roswell Foundation to study civil liberties around civil rights through the country. And what happens, he, uh, uh, he uh, 
this organization is so crapped up that uh, that he's going in a reorganizing. And uh, so I'm not paying any attention. I'm just trying to figure out, should I be another sucker and try to fill an inside straight again? Jesus, what am I going to learn, you know? But the pot's getting bigger on the table. All of a sudden, he says something about, and one of the first things I'm going to do is they've got a guy working out in Los Angeles. Every time we send, they, he's been sent out for a survey, he always starts organizing. So my ears go up, you know, Jesus. Uh, so I'm still, so before I say, well, I'll take another card, I... Said, uh, what's this uh, this weirdo's name? You know, he says Fred Ross. I said, oh, where's he live? You know, so so after the hand is over, I go to a phone and I call Ross. I said, look, you know anything about me? Well, it turned out he was big and married, red, rebelly, and so on. I said, I'm coming out to uh, to uh, L.A. I want to talk to you. I'll be out next week. So I go out there and I start talking to him, and I'm impressed with what I say. But he, don't, he won't go to Montana. He wants to stay in Los Angeles and organize Mexican-Americans. I said, well, hell, I haven't got any dough for that stuff and so on. And, uh, you know, skip it. Now, remember, this is an accident. It starts yeah. off in a poker yeah, game. Right. Yeah. So at this point, yeah. another accident comes into the thing. So he goes over to see a guy that he knows, Kerry McWilliams, who's now, yeah, you know, the nation. Nice. So Kerry comes over and starts talking to me about the plight of the Mexican-Americans. I'm from Chicago. I don't know what the hell the plight of the Mexican-Americans are. Blacks, you can talk to me about Poles, working people, and so forth. But we haven't, at that point, we haven't too many Mexican-Americans of a, of a pointed problem in Chicago. And I'm thinking of, uh, still, of Montana. So finally I said, well, Kerry, look, all right, I'll buy everything you tell me. I've been around to these barrios, and it stinks. They ought to be organized, but I haven't got the dough. How, how the hell am I going to put this guy on a payroll as an organizer? He said, well, let's go over to see Melvin Douglas, you know, the, the, uh, the movie star, the actor. So we go over to see Melvin Douglas. Well, now comes another accident. This is just six months after Nixon had done the job on Helen Gahagan Douglas, his wife. Mm -hmm. And Melvin is boiling. He wants to hit back at, at Nixon, see, this congressman at that point. So he comes. Uh, so we talk about organizing and registering Mexican Americans, getting hundreds of thousands of new votes in, and be able to get Helen Gahagan and be able to get back at Nixon. You know, so he puts up the dough. So we hire Ross. Okay, now accident after accident. Yeah. So I come back to Chicago. Ross is now working out there. In the meantime, I know we're running out of time, That's but okay. a series of accidents occur in New York, with with reference to a, a to a. Um, a new foundation set up by a guy who used to who made all of his money and was one of the big wheels in the Shenley Distilleries. And this guy uh, set up left all of his dough to set up a foundation for a purpose which was no longer existent. A deal with immig with immigration and immigration stopped 30 years before and he hadn't changed his will. I find myself out in the street with a stranger and I don't know that this stranger is one of the trustees of this foundation. And I bitch all over the place. The guy asks me a lot of questions, and he gets sold on it. So he then tells me that he's tied up with this foundation, and I'll give us a clunk of dough. Now, you see the way this yeah, pattern's building yeah. up. Some, some months later, just when all this is happening, Ross calls me and tells me that he's found a, a young Mexican-American lumber handler in Hayward, California, who's sort of rebelling against a lot of the crap his people are dealing with, and can he hire him? for the Industrial Aries Foundation, put them on our payroll, and we can start training. 
So I say to Ross, well, call me back in a week. I'll know whether I get the dough out of this New York Shenley operation, and then we can hire him if you think he's got those potentialities. I get the dough. I call Ross and say, okay, put the kid on your payroll. That turns out to be Cesar Chavez, you know? Otherwise, Cesar probably probably never would have heard of him, you know? And so we come to the question of accident. Accident, chance. Improvisation, but also the imagination to go along with. The imagination. You've got to, you don't panic. You're willing to go with the action, you know? And on the proxy thing, coming back to your question, when the proxy thing first came up, here was the organized black ghetto. Here was the battle against Eastman Kodak. What do we do? How do we fight them? All the old tactics were out the window. We couldn't have a boycott. Boycott them on what? No, nobody would take any pictures. That was out. What else could we do? So the important thing was we had to have action and not try to figure out too much just where the campaign was going because it's a very fluid world, just as I've indicated yeah. on the way from poker to this to that yeah. to this, yeah. and you're going with the action on the thing. And uh, so there's a stockholders meeting that's coming up in about five or six weeks. All right, it give us a piece of action. We'd get some publicity out of it. We'd pick up the joint. We'd try to raise some hell inside. But it was action while we think up of other things, you know. That's all that was in my mind as, a, as I spell it out. And, and the rest, of that. course, is in the book itself. The By rest the way, of it is there. It's very dramatically, very dramatic, very thrilling, too, the Kodak fight, uh, the proxy fight, uh, to to result in reformation in some of the ghetto areas of Rochester. This, in a way, is what Saul Alinsky is offering, a certain way that people can get together and find a sense of power and a sense, sense of joy, basically. So I think, you know, I know and you have... And once they start, the accidents yeah. will start happening. Yeah. That's the interesting yeah. thing. You know, it's funny how this connects with art. Uh, Duke Ellington spoke of this, too, what he calls happy <coughs> accident, a certain phrase unexpected and was misplayed by, say, Johnny Hodgson, and so it opened up avenues to Duke, and a new piece of music came into being as a result of it. Everybody, Zillard, yeah. Niels yeah. Bohr, all yeah. the scientists will, will attest to the same thing. Heisenberg, they'll all attest yeah. to the same thing. By the way, it's a good, good way to end with the Niels Bohr quote, which is your approach, that it's not a question of offering solutions so much as asking questions, the Socratic approach again. It's questions, isn't it? Isn't that the no. idea, pretty much? So I think, so you know, it would be kind of good if you would read the last paragraph, because uh, Alinsky had to be a good writer, too. In the last paragraph, oh, rule, on, Rules you for know, Radicals. Flattery gets you everywhere. Huh? <laughs> flattery will. <laughs> so We usually don't flatter each other until we've had about three double, uh, double scotches. We're doing us, this you know. cold sober. And Random House of the Publishers, Rules for Radicals of Saul Alinsky, perhaps the last, the last paragraph as a sort of a hail farewell for the moment. You really want me to read it? I think so, yeah. It'd be kind of good. Okay. First time I will have read it since I saw it in proofs back some months ago. The great American dream that reached out to the stars has been lost to the stripes. We have forgotten where we came from, we don't know where we are, and we fear where we may be going. Afraid, we turn from the glorious adventure of the pursuit of happiness to a pursuit of an illusionary security in an ordered, stratified, striped society. Our way of life is symbolized to the world by the stripes of military force. At home, we have made a mockery of being our brother's keeper by being his jail keeper. When Americans can no longer see the stars, the times are tragic. We must believe that it is the darkness before the dawn of a beautiful new world. 
We will see it when we believe it. When we believe it. See, it, in a sense, there's an optimistic note here, too. We've got there to, studs. Otherwise, where do we go? Right. Nowhere. So the phrase, his phrase Samuel Beckett used, and I'm sure that's Alinsky's phrase, too, in Waiting for Godot. Blind putz. I was asked, where do you go from here? And he said, on. <laughs> where else? <laughs> it's the old mountain climbers business. You know, why do you climb it? Because it's there. What else is if If we don't believe it, if, if we take hope out, if we say, is it too late? If it's too late, well, scrub it. It's all over, you know. We say it's not. So of course we say it's not. So thank you very much. Rules for Radicals is the book, and quite a powerful, revelatory, and I'd say very therapeutic one, too. And Random House, the publishers, and it's quite available. This is our program for this morning, and after this message, a word about uh, tomorrow's program. Tomorrow, I thought we'd rebroadcast a conversation and some of the musical style to of one of the premier of accompanists of concert singers, Paul Ulanovsky, who, as you know, was the favorite of Lotte Lehmann, as well as among others. So Paul, late Paul Ulanovsky tomorrow and his reflections and music. Until then, take it easy, but take it. <laughs>